Hello everyone and welcome back. My name is Blair or the Illuminati and today we're going to be talking about the Florida School for Boys known as the Arthur G. Dozer School for Boys located in Mariana, Florida. This case is horrifying. I want to start by saying this and this entire video is essentially one big trigger warning after another. If you don't want to hear about child abuse and murder, I highly suggest you leave now. Today's video is going to be extremely sensitive. However, I do believe this is an important topic to cover and bring more attention to because quite frankly, I have not seen much on the subject. This video was highly requested through Twitter DMs, Instagram DMs, my Discord server, all of that. So it took me a while to get to it because honestly, I was afraid to get into it. And a part of me really wishes that maybe I didn't hear any of this, but I did. So I'm going to show you guys what has been put together. And again, this is going to be a pretty dark and hard pill to swallow today in today's video. So without any further introduction, let's get into it. The school was first organized in 1897 and began operations on January 1st, 1900 as a state reform school. It was meant to provide a place where young offenders against the laws of our state might be separated from older, more vicious associates. When the school was organized in 1897, the government the governor at the time appointed five commissioners whose duty it was to superintend, manage the school, and report to the legislature biannually. According to a 2010 report, in 1969, the legislature enacted the Government Reorganization Act that resulted in the Division of Youth Services, which became part of the Florida Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services, HRS. In 1990, HRS transferred the school's management to their Children and Family Services Program office. In 1994, the responsibilities of the school fell under a new agency, the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice, which is still managing the school today. The school has remained open throughout the years, having been known as the Florida State Reform School and the Florida Industrial School for Boys, the Florida School for Boys, and currently operates as the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys. Today, the school is considered a high-risk residential commitment facility for boys 13 to 21 years of age. In the early years, the facility was situated on almost 1,400 acres and periodically housed both male and female students, some as young as six years old. Many of these students were committed to the facility for minor offenses, such as incorrigibility or truancy. White and colored students were segregated from one another until 1968. The school had two campuses, the South Side or number one for the white students and the North Side or number two side for the colored students. The school's North Side campus where the cemetery was located was permanently closed between 1990 and 1991. And just so everyone is aware here, the terms white and colored are used a lot in the reports about the school, simply because I think that was the language the school used in its early years. And I want to make it clear and make it known that if I'm using those words, it is in quotation. Now, the thing is, as alarming as it might sound for a school to have its own cemetery, I wasn't too horrified, at least not yet. After all, one report mentioned a fatal fire in 1914 and the Spanish flu and pneumonia outbreaks, also in the early 1900s. So, Perhaps that's why the cemetery was founded, right? But it seems that from the very beginning, this place was, well, horrific. As early as 1901, literally a year after the school first opened, reports of children chained to walls in irons, brutal whippings, and peonage, known as debt slavery, which was outlawed in 1861, were reported. Whether or not this abuse was happening to innocent or troubled kids doesn't matter. A child is a child. However, one report states that 
Originally, children were committed to the school after criminal conviction, though this changed to include minor offenses such as incorrigibility and truancy. Additionally, many children committed to the school had not been charged with a crime, but were wards of the state and orphans. So being incorrigible or orphaned warranted the same strict punishments as an actual criminal conviction. Charming. In the 1960s, corporal punishment at the school was banned and they renamed the Dozier School after a former superintendent. As the names changed, so did the structure and the White House building became nothing more than storage for maintenance items like air conditioners and paint. The building has been sealed and empty since October 21st, 2008. So you'd think or hope that this was the end, that from the early 1900s to 1960s, a horrible school existed that beat its students and now things have changed and we can move on. But it doesn't end there and no one can move on, not the victims and not the general public that wants answers. And that's because there's still bodies being uncovered on the school grounds. Dozens and dozens of children that died only now being laid to rest. And in some cases, almost a century later, the abuse that went on in the school was way worse than what I thought. And we'll get to that in a moment. But First, we have to get through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. In 1982, inspections revealed that the boys were hogtied and kept in isolation for weeks at a time. The American Civil Liberties Union or the ACLU filed a lawsuit against them as well as other schools at the time over the mistreatment. And in part because of the Dozier School, the entire Florida juvenile justice system faced serious reforms in the 80s. One report from the Orlando Sentinel in 1987 read, theoretically training schools are the end of the road in the juvenile justice system, the last stop for chronic offenders headed for the adult prison system. But in filing the suit in January, 1983, Hadid alleged the Florida's training schools were grossly overpopulated with children that didn't belong there. At the time, the population at three training schools was over 900. The state now has two training schools with a combined population of 500 and an operating budget of $14 million. The average stay is six months. Hadid collected complaints of sexual abuse, physical abuse, and attempted suicide in schools. He maintained that most children placed in training schools belonged in smaller individualized programs and the inappropriate placements created an atmosphere of abuse. Under the terms of the settlement, HRS agreed to reduce the population at each of the state's two training schools, the Eckerd Youth Development Center in Okeechobee and the Arthur G. Dozier School in Mariana from about 250 today to a maximum of 100 youngsters by July 1st, 1990. Instead of training schools, offenders would be placed in alternative community-based programs. Create a transition program with an emphasis on job training and life skills. The agreement also incorporates other significant rulings handed down in 1983 and 1985 by the presiding US District Judge Maurice Paul. Paul ruled earlier that HRS cannot hogtie or shackle youngsters to fixed objects nor put them in isolation. Both were common practice in training schools to control or punish behavior. But they didn't change their ways, not at all. From July, 2004 to March, 2009, DCF, the Department of Children and Families, investigated 316 allegations of abuse at the school. According to documents obtained by the St. Petersburg Times, 17 of those were verified. 33 had some indicator of legitimacy. One incident was caught on security camera. Now it's on YouTube, or at least it was when this article came out. On February 11th, 2007, a skinny 18-year-old named Justin Cadwall is standing in a dormitory at the school. A heavy set guard approaches him and stands there for a moment. 
Then he grabs Cadwall by the throat and slams him backward on the ground. The guard drags the boy into the center of the room, his head bleeding, and leaves him. Cadwell looks to be unconscious, his legs twitch. Two months later, the school superintendent and a guard were fired. State officials decried operational problems at the school that spanned the chain of command from top to bottom. The school's 200 employees would be trained to use verbal intervention instead of physical contact, again. And it took a long fucking time, but people finally started to take notice of this awful place. In late 2009, the school failed its annual inspection because they failed to deal with allegations of mistreatment from some of the boys still being held there. It wasn't until April, 2010 that serious inspections were done. And this is where, needless to say, things become horrific and the floodgates were opened. Some stories say the survivors of the school now sleep with the lights on and many of their men, now in their 70s, have physical scars on their backs. The Tampa Bay Times article entitled, They Went to the Dozier School for Boys Damaged, They Came Out Destroyed, wrote, in some graphic detail, of course, the beatings and whippings these boys received. Survivors that call themselves White House boys claim that they called the building across from the White House the Rape Room, and Robert Staley, one of the former inmates, says he was only 13 years old when he was first sent there. His account is chilling. I was on the entertainment list for the night. That's what it was, Straley said. He remembers a man with an iron grip grabbing him. They were monsters. Oh my God, the things they did, Straley said. When these men had me down, you weren't going to turn into Bruce Lee. You only had one option, and that was you could scream all you wanted. Dick Colin remembers trying not to scream. He was told by guards that if he made a peep, the beating would last longer. Guards would force him to lay on a bed. The pillow he asked you to bury your face in was all blood and snot and guts, Colin recalled. He described the pain as feeling like someone pouring a pot of boiling water on his naked body. The pain got worse with each hit. You screamed in your mind and your heart, and in every ounce of your body you screamed, but you didn't peep. The man told you, don't peep, I'll start at one and I'll go all over again, said Colin, now 66, who lives in Baltimore, Maryland. He remembers standing up after one of the beatings and came nose to nose with a guard who had a smile on his face. I thought to myself, God almighty, if I could right now, I would reach into your chest cavity and pull out your heart and I would bite it while you looked at me, Colin said. He looked at me with a face of satisfaction and contentment over the whipping that he gave me. But the most horrifying thing has been the sheer amount of bodies. The bodies uncovered in the cemetery by the school is enough to churn your stomach. One boy, Owen Smith, in 1940 was sent to the Dozier School for wrecking a stolen car. He tried to escape, but was caught. He escaped again with another boy in December of 1940, and on January 1st, 1941, Owen's parents were informed that he hadn't been found yet. Owen's mother said she would travel there to search for her son, only to be called back later and told her son had been found underneath the house and his body was so badly decomposed that they weren't sure what happened. Yet the boy with Owen said he was last seen running across a field with guards shooting at the time. Owen's family was unable to collect his remains. The school already buried him and they were unable to obtain a death certificate. Earl Wilson, only 12 years old, was sent to the school in 1944 on a larceny charge. He died 72 days later while detained in a tiny seven by 10 foot building with eight other boys known as the sweat box. His death certificate said his cause of death was head injury, but the doctor's conclusion was inconsistent with the testimony of the boys confined with him. They say Earl died when school officials stuffed his nose with cotton as punishment for smoking. It seemed like an oddly specific thing to make up, right? Roger Kaiser, a White House boy survivor said, 
It all boils down to civic liability. They do not want anyone to be able to have factual evidence that would make them pay for these, what I consider to be crimes. There's too many stories, Kaiser says. I know of one that I personally saw die in the bathtub that had been beaten half to death. I thought he'd been mauled by the dogs because I thought he had ran. I never did find out the true story on that. There was a boy who I saw who was dead who came out of the dryer. They put him in one of those large dryers. State investigators said that using school records, they were able to identify 31 former students interred in the school cemetery. Records show 50 other boys also died at the school with no indication of where most are buried. In 2012, archeologist Richard Estabrook and forensic anthropologist Aaron Kimmerell did uncover 49 grave sites at the school. Kimmerell says one question remains hard to answer. Why are there no records of where any of the boys who died at the school are buried? When you look at the state hospital, the state prisons and other state institutions at the time, there are very meticulous plat maps where you can see reference, Kimmerell says. Or if you are a family member today, you can say, where is my great aunt buried? And they can show you exactly where. So why didn't that happen here? I don't know, but that does stand out. Kimrell says identifying who's buried in the graves would require exhuming the bodies, something that can only be done if a family member of one of the deceased requests it. That is the one thing that absolutely does disturb me, that at least 50 children died on these school grounds where beatings did undoubtedly occur. The state had to outlaw corporal punishment there, and we know at a bare minimum, there was abuse. Now, for the school to only report 19 deaths when there were over 50 is incredibly worrying, horrifying, and tragic. What if these children were orphans with nowhere else to go? And so the guards thought they could get away with this behavior and potentially beat these boys to death. I know speculating about literal murder is a bit dangerous and I don't want to make accusations without evidence, but even if these are just truly tragic incidents, how could the school not report them? Even Reuters says one of these deaths were under mysterious circumstances. They also state the research that began in early 2011 and included an examination of state death records revealed missing, conflicting, and sloppy record keeping about the people buried at Dozier and how they died. The institution, the largest reform school in the state, opened in 1900 and closed in 2011. The most common causes of death were disease, fire, physical trauma, and drowning. But seven died during escape attempts, including one 16-year-old who suffered gunshot wounds to the chest, and 20 died within the first three months of arrival, reports said. We as a family are eternally grateful, Glenn Varnado said after a press conference. His uncle, Thomas Varnado, died at the school in 1934, one month after he was remanded there at age 13, along with Glenn Varnado's father. Both were accused of malicious trespassing through a woman's yard on the way home from school. We really have no idea where Thomas is buried, on the north side or on the south side of the campus, said Varnado, adding that his father was too traumatized to speak about his time at the school, except at the very end of his life. Sloppy record keeping sure sounds like an understatement to me. This was so sloppy that I can't help but wonder if it was intentional. Mostly, I just feel awful for the survivors and what they witnessed and the victims who died far too young and the victims' families that may not even know where their loved one, their child's final resting place is. Unfortunately, the state's findings weren't much of help in terms of closure for the victims of Dozier. Here's what their conclusion read. This investigation included over 100 interviews of former students, 
families of former students, and former staff members of the school. The interviews concluded that in addition to the implementation of the individual rating system, school administrators use corporal punishment as a tool to encourage obedience. The interviews revealed little disagreement about the way in which corporal punishment was administered. The former students were consistent in that punishment was administered by school administrators and adult staff witnessed in the building referred to as the White House. The former students were consistent in stating that a wooden paddle or leather strap was the implement used for the administering punishment. The area of disagreement amongst former students was the number of spankings administered and their severity. Although some former students stated that they were beaten to the point that the skin of their buttocks blistered and bled profusely, there was little to no evidence of visible residual scarring. A secondary disagreement was the former students' perceptions of the punishment process. Some former students stated that their spankings caused them no psychological harm and that they learned from their mistakes, while others stated that mentally they suffered greatly as a result and still do to this day. Some reports by former students stated that in addition to corporal punishment, they were also subjected to sexual abuse at the hands of former staff members or other students. With the passage of over 50 years, no tangible physical evidence was found to either support or refute the allegations of physical or sexual abuse. Just because some students on record say a spanking was good for them doesn't excuse the other students insisting they received 135 lashes. In the midst of this investigation in June 2011, the Dozier School closed. I don't know if we'll ever receive all the answers with its doors shut, but more stories continue to pour out. One source states, in August 2013, before the digging began, a group of five elderly black men who were confined at Dozier in the 1950s and 60s returned to Mariana for the first time in decades to revisit the space and grapple with the memories. As reported by Mother Jones Magazine this month, the men made the trek in hopes of giving voice to the black side of the Dozier experience, which they felt recent media coverage had ignored. It's true about the media. I found more sources from the White House boys than what Dozier once called the black side. Richard Huntley, who was 11 when he first arrived at Dozier, said white boys were given vocational work while he and the other black boys were made to work in the field picking and planting for state profit. It was kind of like slavery, he said. Another man, John Bonner, said he remembered the fear he felt of sleeping in the locked dormitories, knowing staff and older boys alike were free to abuse them at will. John Gaddy, 68, was sent to the school at age 11 and still recalls being disciplined in the school's infamous White House, where he was forced to lie on a bed and beaten with a belt until bloody from the waist down. Mr. Gaddy once saw a boy's severed hand in the garbage he hauled for burial and warned to say nothing about it lest he meet a similar fate. Another thing worth noting here, remember the property was 1400 acres and that's a lot of land. There's a chance that they were buried somewhere else on the land and some bodies may never be found. Of the 500 plus that have come forward with their stories of abuse over the years, one narrative has always been the same in so many of my sources and there's plenty more to find. Yet some people, including one columnist for the Jackson County Times insists that these claims have not been proven or substantiated, but much national media attention has been generated, which includes a very negative publicity for our community. And this is just weird for me because I've literally never heard of this school until it was suggested to me. I didn't know a place like this even existed. That's why I find it absolutely stunning to say that like, oh, these are just like media attention claims and all this kind of stuff. But like, I never even heard of this until someone suggested this to me only maybe a month or two or three ago. And this is horrific. And I feel like there are many people, many of you that are watching or listening to this that have never heard of this either until now. 
So if a certain community is going to earn negative press, especially over something like this, then so be it. I'd rather live in a community known for addressing deep-seated problems and coming out the other side better for it than trying to sweep a massive dark history under the rug. Some say they think the boys were spanked and that's it. Former governor Claude Kirk even states that though he remembers boys were locked in the dorms with a chain, he never heard about physical or sexual abuse. None of that surfaced at the time. If it had, I would have done something about it. One psychologist, Lennox Williams, hired in the 60s said, anytime you've got human beings together, you're going to have abuses, but he doesn't believe anyone was beaten to death. In his mind, the abuse stems from having 900 boys, some with mental disabilities, others 18-year-old sex offenders grouped together. And I don't doubt there was abuse between the boys too. But to say that there were probably some abuses when there's a well-documented history of abuse, it's insulting. I really doubt hundreds of men would come forward and say they were abused decades later, knowing that they may never likely see justice. First-hand accounts of the abuse are very similar and very consistent. And even if someone tried to argue that there was no abuse, it doesn't explain many of the other actions taken by those at Dozier. For example, in one incredibly bizarre case, Curry, age 17, died in 1925 under suspicious circumstances while escaping Dozier 29 days after arriving, says the court order permitting his exhumation this week. The coroner at the time ruled Curry's manner of death was unknown. The ledger entry at the Dozier school said he was killed on an RR bridge, Catachui, Florida. Another document at Old Cathedral Cemetery in Philadelphia says he was killed by train. No one from Dozier ever reported his death to the state. He was returned in a casket to his family who in turn buried him in Philadelphia, or so the family thought. It wasn't until a state investigation beginning in 2008 that Curry's death certificate was found at Dozier. It said he died of a crushed skull from an unknown cause. And it wasn't until Tuesday when University of South Florida anthropologists who had been working to unearth and identify remains of the former campus visited Philadelphia with Pennsylvania authorities that the family learned Curry wasn't in the casket. No bones, no clothing, no sign of him at all. Wood, layers of pieces of wood, said anthropologist Erin Kimmerell, explaining what she and her team found in the casket. It was completely filled with wooden planks. At first, the team thought they had the wrong grave, but then they found Curry's great-grandparents beneath the wood-filled casket. Kimmerell was still incredulous Wednesday and was Captain Tom McAndrew of the Pennsylvania State Police, who along with Philadelphia Assistant District Attorney Brendan O'Malley was instrumental in clearing the path for Kimmerell's team to exhume Curry's remains, she said. It was a little bit of a shock. It was certainly anticlimactic, McAndrew said. Something was shipped up from Florida and it was buried and someone believed it was Thomas Curry. Does he think as a law enforcement officer, that the finding is indicative of school officials' intent to deceive Curry's family nine decades ago. Absolutely, he said. But it's not surprising when you consider that the investigation onto the Dozier School has uncovered decades and decades of efforts to deceive, cover-ups, and not just by one, but many people. With this much evidence of unusual deaths, cruel beatings, and unaccounted for bodies, I'm just thrilled to say this place is closed. There's still a lot of intense debate in the community by the sounds of things. Troy Tidwell, a former superintendent, lost his arm when he was six years old, playing with his father's shotgun. He's been remembered as the one-armed enforcer that the kids feared. But in the Tampa Bay Times, his granddaughter paints a very different picture. He's self-conscious about it and sits with his arm facing the wall when the family goes out to dinner. Pippin, Tidwell's daughter, says her grandfather has worked hard his whole life to overcome the handicap 
and more than 40 years at the school, he deserves a peaceful retirement. That's why the allegations burn. It's an embarrassment and defamation of character, she wrote in an email to the Times. That's why we are so upset about the lies and exaggerations made up by these men in an attempt for them to receive retribution. But she says neither her mother nor her uncle have asked Tidwell about the allegations. They respect him too much to ask. Tidwell's lawyer, Matthew Fuqua, says Tidwell admitted that staffers used corporal punishment, but says the White House boys' accounts are exaggerated or completely false. He said, I never saw any child with bloody pants, bruised and bloody from being whipped. Certainly I never did it, and I can't imagine that anybody else did it either because I would have known about it. How does that square with the stories? I don't know, Fuqua says. I don't know whether they're lying or the abuse that happened when they were a child was magnified over a time. All those kids, it was a bad situation they were here. Most of them were lonely and from broken homes. I don't know if it was magnified in their eyes, but the allegations of bloody underwear and that type of stuff, he says just didn't occur or he was not aware of it occurring. Yet others like Bryant Middleton claim Tidwell was his tormentor and mercilessly beat him with a leather strap when he was a younger teenager. Tidwell told CNN that boys were spanked with a half inch thick leather strap, but never beaten. The most they received was apparently 10 spankings. Middleton says the blows are severe and that he didn't accept Tidwell's version of events. Tidwell, on the other hand, told his lawyer he just didn't remember Middleton at all. Others say their shorts were embedded into their skin from some beatings and even had to be pulled or peeled off their skin. So what is the final verdict here? What really happened at the Dozier School? The truth is that we may never know with 100% certainty. Now that the doors are closed and so much time has passed since the worst of the abuse, I can't say for sure exactly how bad the mistreatment and abuse was. However, I do think that many people turned a blind eye from the guards to the superintendents to the state of Florida itself. This went on for far too long. Things didn't really seem to get better and the abuse started from year one. Tidwell's lawyer says the abuse may have been magnified over time in these boys' eyes, but perhaps it was simply minimalized over time in their own eyes too. However, whether the boys died in genuine accidents or suspicious circumstances, Dozier grossly mishandled their remains, which in of itself says a lot about what this school thought of the boys passing through its doors. All in all, I hope the Dozier school boys are able to find some peace, knowing that the school is closed now, and I hope that all the families of the boys who passed away can get some answers and find peace too. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's video. And I hope you all found this interesting and informative because I don't think many of you enjoyed this. I know I most certainly did not enjoy researching and looking into all of this and having to then present it to all of you, but I feel that this was important to share. So thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye guys.